How are you? Welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. My guest today, Alison Nicholas, revolutionised Europe's approach to the Solheim Cup. When she became captain, which really in other sports is the boss, she was so unbelievably revolutionary in approach that they beat America in the most amazing finale in 2011. You may not know who she is if you're not a golfer, and yet this woman has got a stellar record in her sport. As an individual player, she won 18 tournaments in Europe, in America and other parts of the world. She won the US Open in 2007, the top tournament in the world. And she went on to be the finest leader of the women's European golf team in the Solheim Cup ever seen. This is a woman worth listening to. If you're interested in leadership, coaching, management, looking after people properly to get the best results, and if you've got any interest in thinking of the impact of your Christian faith on that kind of leadership in sport, Ali Nicholas is somebody you really need to listen to today. The Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. Early days... You start playing golf at 17, really. Your dad's a keen golfer. But you had aspirations to be a top-class tennis player, but something just triggered the move to golf, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a decent tennis player, but probably not good enough at, at that age, sort of 15, 16. Um, but we, we decided to give it a go. My dad said, look, you know, let's try and play in a few tournaments, see how you get on. And then I went to play in the Manchester Open, and I, I got... <laughs> Paired up against Kate Brasher, who eventually went to Wimbledon, uh, junior Wimbledon, and I got hammered six nil, six nil, and I'm thinking, hmm, I think I need to 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 think about this, and and the fact that I couldn't really see her over the net was perhaps one problem, <laughs> but we decided that you know obviously I wasn't good enough, and my dad just suggested that I'd have a go at golf, so we went up, had some lessons at a driving range. And with a guy called Richard Bennett, who's sadly not with us anymore. And I took it to like a duck to water. And my dad just turned to my stepmom at the time and said, she's going to be good. Uh, became a member at Hallamshire Golf Club. And it just it just sort of went on from there, really. I got better and better and reduced my handicap ridiculously quickly to plus two in four years. <laughs> which is <were>. ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely bad. But I did an awful lot of practice and, you know, had lessons regularly. So I was really... I think that was the key for me because I'd, I got into some really good practice habits and uh, good fundamentals straight off the bat. And I think, you know, that's really important where a lot of people just go out and play straight away, don't have lessons and get into bad habits. And then, you know, it's very difficult to get out of those. So I was very fortunate with Richard. He was, he's a good teacher and um, I just loved competing. And my dad saw that. So he gave me the opportunity to leave school and see what I could do in the game. Within four years then, by 83, you're British amateur stroke play champion. So it's an incredible speed. Uh, so you're obviously a natural. It's obviously terrific. But in 84, when you join the Ladies European Tour, you're a rookie, really. You're going in from scratch. How did you, you cope with that first year? You took you ducked to water, is your phrase, for the golf. D did you just slide in and go? Was it fine? Yeah, I mean, in in back in the eighties, uh, it was probably easier an easier transition than it is now because you have to go through tour schools and all that sort of thing to get on the tour. So all I had to do was fill in a form because my handicap was scratch or better, and I got an endorsement from two pros, and it went to committee, and off I went. 
So I went to my first tournament. Dad, my dad caddied for me, and I came fifth in my first event. So, you know, obviously, I was nervous about the transition. I was thinking, you know, am I going to be able to, to cope with this? Is it going to go well straight off the bat, or am I going to struggle for weeks and months and years? I don't know. So, But that obviously confirmed to me that I made the right decision. And we just went on from there. And I got a few wrong clubs for my dad that first week. But uh, so I decided that perhaps uh, it was better if I got someone else to caddy for me. <laughs> so your first act of leadership was to drop your dad from being your caddy, right? Well, not completely. I mean, he, he was just doing it to, to help me out on the first occasion and, to, you know, just ease me into the into tour life. So it was just him encouraging me, really. And he knew that he wasn't going to be doing it for for very long it's a very successful period with there's so much for us to take in that we can't stop at every juncture the years 85 through 2000 so there's a 15 year window where you're in the top 10 for 15 of 16 seasons and you win 12 events on the tour in that period so it's hugely successful you'll go on uh, and and play in the states and and we'll come to that so it's it's a very successful period in european golf as an individual who were the key influencers? Laura Davis was around, obviously. Katrina Douglas, you knew at this point. Who were your key influencers in life and golf over those years as you grew to maturity as a senior player? Well, I think, you know, all the people that you played on the amateur circuit with, it was like Laura, Trish Johnson, you know, Katrina Douglas. Being competitive against them and seeing them, watching them play and, and, and you know, you, you want to always strive to be better and I think they won before me. So you're always looking at them and learning from them. But, you know, I think all the players around you influence you in some, some respect because, you, you know, you're trying to... You're not necessarily trying to beat them one on one, but you, you know you're trying to, to win tournaments. So you, you, you're always learning from everyone you meet. But Katrina was a, a big influence in lots of ways, more in in life. You know, she she had this sense of peace about her, and you know she seemed to, to be able to cope with every situation that she faced. So. I learned enormous a lot from Katrina and became very, very good friends with her. I'm interested in that link. This is the Christians in Sport podcast, uh, and so is the passion for sport and top-level sport. Our listeners are people who play at the top level, coach, officiate, and people who have faith and people who say, I've got no faith, but, but I like the Christians in Sport podcast. So for that reason, I wouldn't mind you elaborating a little bit on, on Katrina's faith as a golfer and its influence on you. In this period, where were you at in terms of any kind of religious belief? Well, you know, I went to a very uh, sort of high church school. I went to St. School of St. Mary in St. Towns Abbots Bromley. And, you know, we went to church three times a week, basically. So, and I got confirmed when I was probably about 13. So I did believe in God, but I, I think Katrina sort of elaborated on it and, and sort of brought me back. I went away from it. I didn't, it wasn't a daily thing. It was just, you know, Sunday thing for me and uh, I became very good friends with her and she just shared about her faith and her, her Christian faith and I realised that it was a, a relationship with Jesus Christ that it wasn't just a Sunday thing it was every day and and she just shared her story with me and I went along to a lot of Bible studies that she organised on the Ladies European Tour I was quite a slow learner I'd have to say <laughs> it took me sort of four years to to really make a commitment to my Christian faith that I was going to put Christ first and live the Christian life out on a daily basis and she just ex came alongside me and explained stuff 
to me. I could sense that she had this, something about it that was very different and, and she had a peace in her life that, you know, I wanted some of that. I thought she, she seems to be able to handle things so well and whatever happened to her, it didn't matter because her faith was very, very important to her and she always looked to, to the future and everlasting life that comes on committing to the Christian faith. So very significant for me. It was probably the best decision I ever made. I struggled with it for a long time and struggled to understand it and I, I didn't want to do it just because someone else wanted me to do it. I needed to understand the history uh, of Christianity. Uh, I had lots of questions which she answered most of them and then I just decided to go on a journey of faith and, and, and commit to the Christian faith basically. She asked me the question, she said, is there any reason you, you, you won't? And I said, I couldn't think of anything at the time. So I said, no, let's go for it. Mm -hmm. And probably the best decision I've ever made. When was that? That was in 89. It was in a yeah. caravan because in those <laughs> days, there wasn't a lot of money around on the ladies' European tour. So a lot of the players had to travel in caravans and live in tents and all sorts of stuff. So we had our Bible study in a caravan and, and that's where I, I finally came to that decision and, and I've never looked back. But if that's 89, that's the year you join the LPGA Tour. Yeah. Uh, so you go to the States. Lawrence Farmer is helping you with technique. Paul Darby, as you've mentioned. And this is groundbreaking stuff. You know, physio, exercises, stretching. Way ahead of your time when you're on a big transition to playing in the States. You think, I've got to find new ways. I've got to find something different. I've got to get better. When you go then, I know those early years were tough and you thought of quitting, right? It, it really was tough early on on the American Tour. Oh, it was. I mean, you know, obviously playing on the European tour week in, week out, I was in the top 10 all the time. And suddenly I'm going, you know, I'm going into a very competitive environment where the levels of competitiveness has gone up and they're, they're just better and they don't make as many mistakes. So I'm suddenly a little fish in a big pond and I'm struggling to swim. I was missing cuts left, right and centre. You know, you make one mistake on the golf course if you have a double bogey and a bogey and you just go zooming down the field. So it was tough. I knew that I needed to improve my technique and I needed to be fitter. And that's what I learned when I first went out there because these girls were working hard. They had a fitness trailer and the girls were in there every day and working on their game. And, you know, so I learned very quickly. I observe all the time people. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what have I got to do to get to that level? And so I obviously put a plan in place and, and went for it. I stayed there for six months. I thought, you know, I'm really not enjoying this. So I came back. I lost my confidence completely. I thought, well, I've got to get my confidence back, number one. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep falling. So I thought, well, I'll come back to Europe get my confidence back and then we'll we'll reassess and maybe try it again uh, and that's what I did basically I wasn't going to sort of keep struggling to a point of no return so I luckily saw the wisdom of that and came back and managed to get into the next Solheim Cup and, and then I went back to qualifying school after the win so my confidence was high uh, I qualified easily and then things just um, you know I had a little bit more wisdom about understanding that I needed to be much more patient and, and with myself and just give myself some time. And Nancy Lopez, interesting enough, said to me, you haven't given it enough time. You just, you know, you've got to get used to the environment and, and work yourself up to playing over here. Give yourself more time. You can do this. And so I took that on board and, you know. <laughs> Did you? You took it on board so much that by 97, you're walking on the 18th. It's you or Nancy who's going to be US Open champion. She's a hero as a young golfer at 17. And tell me what it's like 
walking up the 18th when you are absolutely confident you're the champion? I wasn't totally. <laughs> you sound like you were, even though outside it, you're, you're saying it wasn't a done deal. You've got to make the putt. But my goodness, you see, that this is why I think the leadership that we, sh- we find in a minute in the Solheim Cup comes through. Inside, you know you're going to make the putt and you know you're going to do it somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't have any doubts. I mean, obviously, you don't know what they're going to do. I can't control her or, or, you know, how she plays. I can only control what I do. And so, yeah, I was confident. But, you know, she could have made her birdie putt. We could have had an 18-hole playoff the next day, which would have been very difficult. But, you know, I, I felt confident. I think my caddy was more nervous than me, actually. <laughs> Did you tell him off? No, he was, it was interesting because I had a, a, a wedge shot into the last third shot. And he had the yardage book, and the yardage book was shaking so much, I couldn't see the yardage. I said, look, I said, you need to calm down, Pooch. <laughs> you need to calm down. To the I said, are you nervous? And he goes, yeah, yeah, just a little bit. I said, oh, we'll be all right. I mean, of course I was, but, you know, we had a bit of a laugh, and, and I think that just helped me relax. And um, I hit a good third shot, and I had two putts, and amazing and I think Nancy's regretted encouraging me ever since and I think her her daughter reminded of her I said it's your fault <laughs> you encouraged her to come uh, back to America but isn't that class though yeah I mean that's that's class isn't it it is I mean she's a lovely person yeah and, you know she she struggled to accept the fact that she never won the US Open yeah and that was really hard for her. She she really struggled with it because she'd come second twice before. And obviously this was her chance and she didn't cross the line and I did. So um, it did affect her for a long time. You're touching on something here, you see. Your autobiography, Walking Tall, came out in 2015. And one of the very noticeable things about it, and I see it in that story about Nancy Lopez, who's a giant and never wins it and you beat her when she's been an encouragement to you, is you just refuse in your autobiography. I read, you read loads if you're in sport. You just you love reading about people who've been at the top. You never slag anybody off. You never dig anybody out in this book. Not once. And there's something that I can't quite put my finger on. Obviously, something to do with your faith. Entirely committed to winning, ruthless, but in the right way, in a respectful and dignified way. Would you see yourself like that? Or is it somebody else looking on? No, I think that, you know, I try to, to do the right things. And, I, you know, I think as a Christian, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, is this going to honour Christ at the end of it? And, you know, you've got to respect other people as much as possible. I think that's really important. There's been difficult moments over the years and incidences that have happened at the Solheim Cup and during tournaments, but it's not for me to, to put that in a book. If I've got a problem with someone or someone's got a problem with me, the most important thing is to talk that through with that person and not send it out to other people. I think that's very important. I think my dad and my mum brought me up in a way that also said that you've got to do things the right way. So when you read the Bible and, and the instruction you get from that, it is important to respect other people. Well, I, I'm going to use that answer of yours to, to move us into not playing Solheim Cup necessarily, but being the vice-captain and captain. So 97, Nancy Lopez, victory in the US Open, your Sunday Times Sportsman Woman of the Year, plus a myriad of other awards that follow from it. Huge number of awards. MBE from the Queen. Amazing. But in 2004, you call it a day in terms of playing. So you've been a professional 20 years. Meanwhile, as part of this, you've played in the Solheim Cup from its beginning and you you win three times, lose three as, as a player. Your great partner is Laura Davis, the brilliant, tremendous golfer. Laura Davis is your partner. Now, 
I know there's vice captaincy and captaincy, but I want to pin you then on the first time you have to say to Laura Davis, you're not playing this afternoon because you talk about difficult situations and uh, and and this is a great golfer, your pal, your partner. And you know for the sake of the team uh, that she can't go out that afternoon. You need to change it around a bit. How hard was that? Was that the toughest decision you had to make at the beginning of leadership? Really, really difficult. It was very painful. But I think that, you know, I had to have my captain's head on. This is about a team. This isn't about an individual. And she was struggling a little bit with her form. And I felt it was the right decision for the team. I found it very difficult to tell her and because and, I knew she, she'd be upset because she loves to play in every match. And I thought this would probably affect her confidence a little bit so yeah it was very tough and perhaps I didn't deal with it in the right way in some ways I should have probably talked it through with her a little bit more which I didn't do because I'm being pulled from pillar to post at the same time I've got to get on and send the, the team off the first tee and you know so I, I sort of left her alone for a while and yeah eventually we came together and, and we talked about it afterwards so we were able to reconcile that situation but it was tough and and you know I felt for her and it was just one of those things that you have to do when you're a leader or, or a captain uh, and it's it's not easy but it, it was never a slight against her in any shape or form it was all about Team Europe. I think it's at this point that if you're not a golfer and you see well that you Ali Nicholas were captain of the Solan Cup team that is really manager, coach, psychologist, the whole thing wrapped into one. You're not playing, so you're the gaffer, really. You're the boss. I'm fascinated by uh, one more story of, of tension in leadership, right? Mark Casey comes to see you after the loss in 2009 Solheim Cup uh, in the States, and you meet with him at Warwick Services on the M40. It's all glam. And his parting words to you are, yeah, look, it's been, we did our best, but we didn't win. And now we need to find a captain who can win. And you've got to drive away from that. And you think, I've no chance of being captain again. In 2011, you win the Solheim Cup in the most dramatic way. And he's the man who's had to phone you to say, you're captain for 2011. Tell me about that tension point. Were you gutted? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of surreal, really. I mean, obviously, meeting at a service station, that's uh, the sort of glamorous side of um, the Ladies' European Tour. I'm sure that didn't happen at Ryder, the Ryder Cup. <laughs> I'm sure they'd met at a five-star hotel, but that was quite entertaining. Yeah, it was it was weird, really, because obviously we had the meeting, we talked through loads of stuff, and then he said that at the end, and I just went... I, I sort of laughed a little bit, because I thought, well, you know, I thought I'd done a really good job, and I had a lot of support and great feedback from a lot of people about what a good job I'd done. So I'm thinking, hmm, interesting. So I went away and I thought, well, that might be it. But there's a committee who make that decision. He doesn't make that on his own. I was sort of thinking, hmm, might have a chance, but it's 50-50. So I thought, well... You know, I think that's where my faith, you draw on your faith and you think, well, you know, whatever will be, will be. And it, it, I know that the Lord will, whatever happens, something good will come out of this one way or other, whether I get the captaincy or I don't. So I just went away and drove home and sort of got on with life, really. Uh, and then I got the phone call to say, well, by the way, it was a unanimous decision. <laughs> so it was like, I've gone from no chance <laughs> to, you know, you're going to be captain again. So, yeah, I was absolutely delighted. I, want, I wanted a second chance, unfinished business as far as I was concerned. We needed to win. I wanted to get those girls to believe in themselves and, and walk tall and, and, and play well. And, and that was really my whole strategy to try and change the mindset of a group of girls because they really didn't believe that they could win against the Americans. We'd gone through a stage where we'd lost three Solheim Cups in a row. And it wasn't necessarily the, the four ball and the foursomes. It was the singles. We struggled when one-on-one. And they just had this fear factor about 
Yeah, the Americans, you know, say, well, I just can't beat this girl, you know, because they're up in the world rankings and we're way down here. And and so I got some really good nuggets from some of the Ryder Cup captains about some of the things that I could say to them and talk to them about. You know, for match play for me is, is a great leveller. You can beat anyone on any given day over 18 holes. Over 72 holes on a tournament is a little bit more difficult. But over 18 holes, I felt that any of our players could beat the Americans. And I tried, I did some stats on all their tournaments and on their scores on every day. And I said, you know how many times you've beaten some of these players over 18 holes? And they all started going, oh, didn't realise that. And so it started to change their mindset. And then I got some DVDs from Seve and Ian Poulter about how to think and how to, you know, if you believe in yourself, you know, you can achieve. And so I sort of drip feeding them with all these little nuggets and bits of information that started them to rethink and change their mindset although it was a tight thing but Ryder Cup Solheim Cups are tight you know it ebbs and flows one minute you're in the lead then changes and then it comes back again so it is a sort of an emotional roller coaster. and obviously that last half hour was just amazing I'm thinking we were dead in the water and then suddenly we re-emerged and, and clinch the victory and it was just for me it was phenomenal to see others achieve and sort of fulfill their potential or the potential that I knew they had in them and and that was hugely satisfying for me and it was all them I mean I just did little bits but they were just fabulous oh, see that's what I love that's when you know you're talking to proper leaders I just love that it is all them because the best leaders make sure it's all them I researched what you did on this you talked to Steve Peters in 09, who was is a huge influence on British cycling and other things with his brilliance as a sports psychologist. You're nervous of giving a speech because you have to greet everybody and do the opening speech. So you go to a brilliant speech giver and writer, Dave Purdy, and you, you work it and work it and work it so you can do it. And that's just the beginning. Just captains you speak to, talk of uh, Ryder Cup captains who you watch and you would take things from and who you wouldn't. And I love the way that you make sure that the girls get the stats, their stats and and their win ratios of 18 holes. And then you plaster the walls with great life-size pictures of the girls in action in their hotel. That's not all them, but that's not a question. That's just a comment from me. That can't be all them. That's just sheer rigor from you, Alison Nicholas. Can I have an iPad off you with a John Wooden quote? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Come on, I want that story. You put an iPad on their pillow, used to put presents on their pillow, and they got an iPad, and you'd put a quote every night. Oh, that's right, yeah. Every night I I did a John Wooden quote just to to, to get them. I mean, some of them might have chucked it in the bin because some of them aren't like that. They don't overthink things. Probably Laura, possibly, I don't know, I never asked her. But others kept it in their yardage book, you know, and, 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 you know, really read it and thought it through and, and took hold of it. And, you know, I was trying to really to just to release the pressure because the, it, it's such a pressure-packed environment, the Solheim Cup, and there's no sort of sort of release. So I was making sure that in the team room that they could really enjoy themselves and just let go and just give them little bits of, of, of sound information which would help them just focus on the process. And uh, it seemed to work, and they were really uh, up for it and played for themselves and played for the team and played for me so it was just fabulous really and I did a lot of research I mean I read so many books on psychology and listened to Steve Peters and I also went to Hope Powell and 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 had a meeting with her I I I did so much um, research and just trying to find every little bit that I could and then think about really what I was going to say to the girls as well. If they were losing I needed to have something to say to them if they were winning then obviously that's an easy 
part of it. But if they weren't, then, you know, I had to sort of have every scenario backed up with something so that I could actually communicate to them in the right way. But, you know, I had a great team around me. It wasn't just me. I had eight helpers who were fabulous. You know, I briefed them on how I wanted them to operate. And I just wanted a really nice, relaxed atmosphere as as much as possible. Because as soon as you get onto the first tee, that's when tension uh, is just unbelievable. So I needed to balance that out. And, you know, I don't like making speeches. I hate that part. So I thought, well, I've got to prepare. And so I I finally shared a taxi with David Purdy when I was doing a pram in Scotland. And he was doing the speech that night. And I thought, oh, this guy can talk. And he talked and he helped Sam Torrance. So I thought, well, this is the guy. So I pushed the boundaries in terms of the budget for the Ladies European Tour. Because, you know, obviously we needed to pay him for that. And so I was saying, well, I need this, I need that, I need that. Uh, and they they went with it and it it helped me enormously I actually wrote my speech myself the second time because of he'd helped me the first time so he taught me how to do it fabulous guy uh, learned an awful lot from him and um, you know I think that sort of set the tone for my team if I prepare well and do things well it it just brings that motivation and influence uh, through to them and they want to do well for you because you've you've done your bit Ali it's been fascinating getting inside the mind of of, uh an elite top-level player and a top-level coach. The one thing that I've tried to work out as I've listened to you is this incredible almost contrast. As an individual player, if I may put it like this, you come across as self-critical, sometimes quite anxious about yourself. Yes. And yet the moment you're given leadership of a group of girls, even in this interview, your whole demeanour lights up. It's all about the team, the rigour, the excellence, the detail. How do you explain that contrast as as a leader? So self-critical of your own game, so brilliantly gregarious in serving others. Is that the hallmark of leadership? Possibly. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I read so many books and that, you know, I just learned an awful lot from that. And actually to put it into practice is probably a lot harder because obviously, you know, reading just a, a book doesn't necessarily give you the skills to go and do that. But... I talked to a lot of people and just observed. You know, I talked to Monty for three hours and I understood that it's got to be all about them. It doesn't matter whether I feel uncomfortable in a situation because I'm not the one performing. They feel comfortable and that's the most important thing. And so I just, it's sort of weird. I'm, I'm probably... A little bit like my father, I would say, because I remember, I mean, unfortunately, my father died before the book came out. And at his funeral, there was a guy who was a friend of his who actually sort of described my dad. And he was exactly the same. He was very self-critical, but brilliant with other people and made them believe in themselves and encourage them because he was was a doctor and he tutored med students. So and they all came out with flying colours in terms of their exams. So. Maybe something there in in that that I I got from him, but I am very self-critical and sometimes can get very anxious when I, you know, performing myself. When I see others, I I, I don't know, I I don't have that so much and I'm able to encourage and help others. And I think probably from my Christian faith, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about that and encouragement and, and believing in others. So I think that... You know, obviously learned an awful lot from that. But no, I just I just found it really fun to see others sort of come out and, and play their best and enjoy the Solheim Cup and just a great experience. I think when you're a golf professional, it's all about yourself. 
and your performance, you don't play in team stuff. I played for Yorkshire County and I loved that. And so when I got the opportunity in terms of Solheim, I lit up really. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. This is about working as a team with other people. I suppose I, I miss that in, in a way and I miss being part of a team. You know, if I get on with people and I work in a team where I get on with people, then I thrive. It's when I feel anxious and not sure about something, then that's when I struggle. And I probably struggled a little bit myself because I was so hard on myself. But I think most sports people are because you you can't get better unless you are a little bit like that. But then when it goes to the to the extreme of that, it can be very damaging because then you know it can affect your self worth and, and and confidence. So. You know, you have to try and balance that up. And I struggled with that, I'd have to say. And um, my caddies and have often had, we've had big discussions at night about, you know, Al, you've, you've just got to just chill a bit because you're, you're affecting your whole mental performance out there because you're having a go at yourself all the time. It's only because I really want to be the best. And I think that, you know, obviously I've probably got a little bit of it from my dad. You were on the green when the putt went in to win in 2011, right? Did you hear the roar? Um, well, I was on I was on 18 when Suzanne Patterson came up mm. and um, she held that putt. Mm. No, actually, I wasn't. No, you're right. I was down the fairway and they were all jumping around. So, yeah, I was I wasn't that far away. I was about 120 yards away. But I wanted it to be their moment. You know, they'd done the hard work and the grafting out there. You know, they'd come back from a position which didn't look particularly hopeful half an hour before the end. And um, Suzanne was a great leader in the team. We had a rain delay and, you know, we were back in the team room and everyone was saying, come on, we can do this. And I sort of said, come on, everyone, we can do this. And then they got the buggies ready to take the players back out. And Suzanne shared a buggy with uh, Athara Munos and Caroline Hedwell. And she said to the both of them, I said, right, I'm going to get my point. What are you two going to do? And he said, I'm going to get mine and I'm going to get a half. And they had a pack. And, you know, you need leaders in your team. And I encourage Suzanne to be a leader because I feel she is. And, you know, I wanted them to step up to the plate. So she was able to talk to and encourage and fire up two rookies. And they did the business. So wonderful. Ali, your dad may miss the book, but he saw everything else. Uh, and he would be very, very proud of you, I'm sure. Very proud indeed. It's been a joy. It's been a real joy interviewing. Thank you. Thanks for making time. No problem. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Alison Nicholas. Thank you, Dano. Well, Alison Nicholas, if you want to read Ali's story, her book, Walking Tall, is available on Amazon. Really worth a read. Oh, she was great, wasn't she? My word. Really, there's nothing of her. Absolutely nothing. And she's a giant. I, I just love it. Inside the head and heart of top performing sports people. And top-performing sports people who can articulate their faith and what makes them the person they are. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thank you for listening. We're delighted that you keep listening to the Christians in Sport podcast. We've got a bit of a catalogue going now, haven't we? So we've got other podcasts. And if you just go to iTunes and stick Christians in Sport in, you're in for an absolute treat because all the people we interview are top draw and they're really worth a listen. We do like your comments, by the way. And if you've got any feedback or comments you want to make, just go to Twitter at CIS underscore UK and you'll get us there. Been a joy, as always, having your company. Look forward to seeing you next time. Go well.